Hey, thanks for joining us on the Summit Church Podcast. We want to connect you to a relationship with God and all He has in store for you. We hope this inspires you, strengthens your faith, and gives you hope to live your best days now. Enjoy the message. Today's Pentecost Sunday, and I want to just share some thoughts with you that I trust will be a blessing. I, I never preach the same message twice, so even though I'm going to preach the same text in both services, I'm going to flesh it out in two messages, so you may want to get the second one if this one bores you. I brought my notes in case God doesn't show up. But in the New King James Version, in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read various portions of it. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, One sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then down to verse 11 in the second half, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. One of the things that I think I love as a musician is that having been raised in New York and having been part of the local 802, now I won't, my last name ends in a vowel, so I'm Italian, so. I was, I, I was very familiar with a very well-known organization, um, M-A-F-I-A, the Mothers and Fathers Italian Association. <laughs> Every member of the band in The Godfather is someone I knew and worked for. Uh, the two twins that were the flower girls were next-door neighbors, and all of them were Italian in that movie, just in case, except for Robert Duvall um, and Jimmy Kahn. But all the others were Italian, and most of them were connected. But that's beside the point. <laughs> Gianni Russo played Carlo, and um, his father was my boss. His father, Lou Russ, was the head of the Musicians Union. And if you... Any Godfather fans in here at all? Anybody, no. Like, anybody seen the whole... Like, on, on Lifetime, they play every few weeks the entire series. I watch it again and again and again just to see what I miss and all the clues of how they get whacked. And 
You know, it's just, I love violence and blood. It's just, Italians have a version of laying on of hands that's a little bit more effective than the biblical one. And we use it frequently. And for 500 bucks, I've got two friends in New York, Luigi and Anthony. If you need any help, they lay hands really well. They'll fix any situation you have. But one of the things that I think um, I appreciated, Lou, Lou headed up the Musicians Union. And I remember at 16 years old, 17 years old, going across the street, because they lived across the street from me. And I knocked on the door, and Gianni Russo is the spitting image of his father, and he has the same kind of voice. And, and I knocked on the door, and Lou Russ answers, What do you want, kid? I said, Mr. Russ, I want to be a member of the Musicians Union. He said, Are you good? I said, I'd like to think so. He said, What do you do? I said, I play the piano, and I like jazz, and I sing. I can do the American songbook. He said, You got $300? I said, yeah. He says, you're in. That was it. He says, go home, kid. I'll call you. I went across the street and went back home. And then two hours later, he said, hey, kid, it's Friday. What are you doing tonight? I said, nothing, Mr. Rice. He says, no, no, you're working. I need you to be at such and such a restaurant at 8 o'clock. You ready? I said, yes, sir. And that began my journey on my way to wanting to become an entertainer. And then God had other plans, but I learned jazz improvisation listening to the likes of Art Tatum, Dave Brubeck, Nat King Cole, Oscar Peterson. One of the thrills of my life was meeting Natalie Cole in um, Hollywood in Beverly Hills at the Beverly Hilton uh, for a gathering of Christian artists. And I let her know how much her dad had an impact on my life as a pianist, apart from the fact that he was a phenomenal singer. And she said, Mark, my dad couldn't read a scratch of music. Everything he did, he did by ear. And that was mind-blowing. I literally learned how to improvise, listening to him over and over, hours and hours, as he would move on those keys when he played with the trio. I say all that to say this. When you play jazz, even rock and roll, but they're, they're, when, when a band comes together, there's something that happens where they, at some moment, enter into a state where they're what we call in the pocket. And when they're in the pocket, they function as one mind, one consciousness. And what comes out of that is utterly creative, utterly exhilarating, utterly mind-blowing, Herbie Hancock will tell you stories about that. Thelonious Monk, if he were alive, would tell you stories about that. Dave Brubeck could tell you stories about that. Rick could probably tell you stories about that. As musicians, we, we look for those moments where we're all moving together in one flowing reality. Being in the pocket, I think, is part of what Pentecost is all about. And when we think about the fact that it says they were all together in one accord, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. That word one accord in the Greek is homothumadon. Everybody say that, homothumadon. The translation of homothumadon is rushing along in unison. Say that. Say it again. One more time. 
So now think with me for a moment. I'm going to replace those words with what's in the King James, the New King James. And they were all together rushing along in unison in the pocket. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Notice the connection. They were all together rushing along in unison. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Which preceded which? I know the wind blows where it wills. But is God looking for something in the church in the hour in which we live where we learn how to really get in the pocket together and behave as the family of God so that God can, by correspondence, say, because you've come to this place and you're in the pocket, I'm going to go ahead and jam with you. Are you breathing? And so... I want you to think about that because as the people that were observing what was going on, now this is me, Pastor Rick can fix this. I don't think this happened in the upper room. There's too many people involved. I think this was actually in the temple. Um, Tradition doesn't even say it was the upper room. We've just assumed it's the upper room. But there's too many people involved. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, the upper room is really small. And it's, it's in Bethany. It's not in Jerusalem. And the habit of the apostles was to go to the temple at the hour of prayer. And it's, the, it's, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. And because of the accusation that's leveled, I would argue it has to be the temple. Here's the reason why. There were those that mocked and said they're full of new wine or sweet wine. The accusation was the libation offering had been broken into and they had stolen the, the wine from the libation offering that the priest was going to pour out. That's just free. Pastor Rick can fix it, but I'm right. I have a rule at home. The rule number one is that the bishop is always right. Rule number two is if the bishop is wrong, refer back to rule number one. (laughs) And the folk just remind me of that all the time. Even when I'm wrong, I'm right. But But, but... There's something going on here that I think is really important. And, and when, you, when you go to seminary and you study all this, they'll tell you that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel, the Tower of Babel. I want to suggest to you it's the fulfillment of Babel, not the reversal. And what I'm talking about today is Peter taking his stand with the 11. So stay with me as I, as I, as I take you a little bit further. One of the realities of the spirit is that the spirit is a creator spirit and a creative spirit. And this creative spirit is something that all of us partake of as believers. And a lot of times in our lives, we don't realize how creative we are because we tend to believe only musicians are creative, only scriptwriters are creative, only actors are creative, but all of us have innate creativity. Gentlemen, how many of you have improvised when your wife has been gone and come up with a dish she would never cook? <laughs> now, she might not eat it, but you were creative. That's creativity. 
Um, I have blessed my wife on many occasions in the kitchen. Like, I broke two Corningware um, uh, pots, not pots, with the ceramic, whatever you call them, and I told her I had good news and bad news. And she said, well, what's, what's the bad news? I said, well, two of your ceramic Corningwares are gone. Well, what's the good news? You have two extra lids now. So you always have to look for the, you know, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. You got two extra lids. We got home from our honeymoon, and I thought I could help her teach, teach her how to cook. I'm Italian. She's Norwegian. She needed help. I wanted to help her with her creativity. And uh, we got home from the honeymoon. Honeymoon was great. And I walked into the kitchen and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm about to make dinner. And I said, well, why are you doing this? She took the frying pan and said, you come one step closer in my kitchen and you're going to go to heaven real quick. <laughs> so I've never been allowed in the kitchen since. So I'm not allowed to be creative, but only when she's gone. And so she's leaving in a few weeks to see her sister. I'm really looking forward to that because I get to do whatever <laughs> I want. But most of the time, we tend not to think we're creative, and most of the time, we've got a lot of unfinished business. All of us are a commingling of brokenness and beauty. Peter was no exception. But when we think about Babel and we think about the confusion that Babel is all about, we want to say, well, at Pentecost, everything gets reversed and there's a unifying. Yes, there is, but... What happens at Babel is really interesting because there is this sense in which the flood has taken place <clears throat> and now the, the descendants of Nimrod want to build a tower and a city around the tower that can reach to heaven so that they can play God so they'll never lose their lives again. And it says they were of one language and one lip. One language and one lip. Now, both of those words, and I haven't got time to go through all the passages of Scripture, but the language word there is used scripturally to describe regular talk, city talk. Lip is used to describe liturgical or worship talk. The language around the tower was liturgical and worshipful, much like our worship this morning. The language around the city was civil commerce. Two different things they were talking about, the language of the city and the language of assent to God, to try to be like God. They wanted to talk like God, about God, without God. And they wanted a city where they could talk like God, about God, without God. And both languages excluded the fact that God, the Logos, had no voice in the conversation. They left his word out of the conversation. Now, their aspiration was in some ways a twisting of something good because God is looking for us to look for a city that has foundations as builder and maker as him. Abraham was looking for a city. And it's interesting that when we talk about Pentecost, we're really talking about what it means to be a family and to get in the pocket. Because 
The call of Abraham comes after the scattering of the nations at Babel. And it sets us up for the fact that we go on a journey to find the city of God with Abraham and Sarah, our father and mother, who have to go on a journey from barrenness to birth and brokenness to beauty. How many of you know what it's like to look back at the last two and a half, three years of everything we've gone through and realize it didn't make us or break us, it just revealed where we really are? I think we tend to think that it exacerbated stuff and made us stressful. I want to suggest to you all our thieves and robbers started coming out of our temple because we were being refined by fire. It's not that we haven't been divided. We've always been divided. We just, we just although Twitter and Facebook shows us how ugly we are, um, but when the church gets divided, people that say they love Jesus and then want to kill one another, um, and everything gets politicized. We're certainly not in the pocket. And all of us need to realize that Abraham and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, are the family we come from. And that family has to go on a journey from barrenness to birth. Abram and Sarai are the first couple in all the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis that can't do what everybody else does. There are no generations. Abram's the first one that we have a negation. Sarai had no child. And I would suggest to you that more often than not, when we go through the kind of crises that we just went through, what we discover first is the areas of negation in our hearts that we've been running away from the areas where we can't be creative, the areas where we can't produce. And it causes us to have to wrestle with those parts of our lives that hide in the shadows that we don't want to look at. That's why Peter has to go through a lot to get to a place where on the day of Pentecost, he took his stand with the 11. But when we get to this moment and... We think about it in relationship to this so-called family that was trying to be built at Babel. We call it Babel because it sounded like they were babbling. At Pentecost, I want to be very careful here because I love Pentecost. I love being a Pentecostal. I have no bones about the gifts of the Spirit. I don't but I'd like to suggest to you that when we look at the account of Pentecost here, it's not about speaking in unknown tongues. It's about speaking in known tongues. It's about speaking in every language under heaven. This is not glossolalia. This is xenolalia. Every single nation that was in Jerusalem from around the world heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. Even though the 120 didn't know what they were saying, the thousands did. You breathing? Stay with me, because I'm talking to you about being in the pocket, Peter coming to a place of owning his brokenness, and what it means to be the family of God what it means to love one another because the fire of Pentecost is the fire of love. 
The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism into the fiery love of God. It's not into how well you can roll on the floor or jump high in a rapture drill. I don't know if you all remember those days when we had rapture drills, but I also, I don't, see, I came up in a, in, in a day when they massaged the Holy Ghost into you. Do you feel it, brother? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? Give it to them, Jesus. Just they'd shake your head and do all sorts of stuff. And then, and then tell you, say, who stole them a Honda? And you'd say, just say it again and again. Guys, it can't be this hard. It's just, you know, it's, this is just not the way it works. But they heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. The question was, what does this mean? All of us make meaning of what we observe in life. One of the things that makes you human is that you're a meaning maker. You're constantly looking at situations and interpreting them. Now, we live in a culture in America where we say three easy steps and you get this, four steps and you get this. Give me a formula so I can have a quick fix and get through it. And we end up thinking that if I just change my behavior, I'll get the results I want. That's not true. Psychologically, it's not true. Philosophically, it's not true. And experientially, it's not true. But we keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. If I change my behavior, my results will change. It's called behavior modification. It doesn't work. That's free. If you change your observations, your interpretations will change. And when your interpretations will change, your results will change. It has nothing to do with changing your actions. It has to do with changing the way you see what is happening so that you can interpret it from a different perspective. Your way of seeing has to change to speak in terms of your way of interpreting because your observations determine what you do. And your observations lead to answering the question, what does this mean? And once you discover what it actually means, you know the steps to take. It's not a formula. It's a discerning. It's about wisdom and not about knowledge. And so the question becomes, what is Jesus up to right now in the church? Where is he going? And the most important question of the three, are we going with him? What is Jesus up to? Where is he going? Are we going with him? Now, those three questions have governed my life for the last 12 years. I was blowing and going from the 90s into the early 2000s, and I hit a pocket of a perfect storm in 2007, and I went through the darkest three and a half years of my life, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I have a book coming out. It took me 11 years to write it. It's coming out in July by Chosen Books called On the Edge of Hope, and I get really naked and transparent about the anxiety, the depression, the despair, and having to choose life 24-7 for three and a half years because I preferred death. Um... I had to change the way I observe reality. I had to come to terms with powerful, afflicting thoughts and pains in a, in a culture that thinks that suffering and pain shouldn't be a part of our life. I had to unlearn half of the things I learned 
thinking what I was saying was true, knowing it didn't always work. And I came out of that season asking those three questions, and they're the only three questions I've ever asked for the last 12 years. They've governed my life since then. What is Jesus up to? Where's he going? Am I going with him? And then my church, are we going with him? And so I've had to take a good look at the brokenness in my life and the barrenness in my life and the beauty God wants to bring out of it and the birthing God wants to bring out of it and the creativity so I could live in that pocket, that flow of the creative spirit and speak the wonderful works of God. It's interesting that Pentecost happened seven weeks after the crucifixion. They thought they got rid of him. But this dead man got back up and said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive another comforter because I'm going to come and shadow you. They may think they got rid of me, but I'm going to come and shadow you, and you're going to do greater works, not because you're going to leave me behind, but because I'm going to do them through you in a way that they're not going to know it's me, and you're going to so shine your light that they're going to see my, your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven because I'm going to be your shadow. Me and my shadow strolling down the avenue. I'm going to shadow you. I'm going to lead you from behind. It's going to be me, but you're going to, it's going to, I'm going to make you look good, but it's going to be me, because apart from me, Peter, you can't do a thing. Now, Peter, you're going to have to learn those lessons the hard way, but I'm going to bring you from barrenness to birth, from brokenness to beauty, so that on the day of Pentecost, you can stop standing apart from your brothers and get in the pocket and stand with them so I can do something significant. It was not unintelligible tongues that was troubling the listeners. It was the wonderful works of God. This was not the reverse of Babylon. It was Babel. This was the fulfillment of Babel. This was language that united, but for those that didn't want a dead Messiah that wasn't a political Messiah and wanted a lover that was going to love everybody and not just the select or the elect, this was Babel to them. They didn't want that Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that they could make in their own image and likeness. They didn't want one that was going to bless every family on the earth because when God promised Abram and Sarah, they wouldn't just have a child, but that their seed would bless every family on the earth. That meant God was saying, I am going to put my spirit of love, fiery love, to consume all all the self-centeredness and individualism and egocentricity that's in the human condition in your brokenness so that you can stand together, get in the groove, and I can shadow you and let everybody know how much I love them. And when God decides to do that through Peter, because he's given the keys first. Peter is an archetypal figure, because all of us can relate to Peter. How many of you know the old expression, open mouth wide, insert foot, and bite? That's Peter. He's impulsive. He's impetuous. He's like, he's got to be the first one to dive in. I mean, Peter is just like this character that just does everything wrong, and God loves him anyway. 
Here's the thing about Peter. All of us are Peter. And God doesn't love us in spite of our foolishness. God loves us because of our weakness. He doesn't make an excuse for our weakness. Listen carefully. Marilyn Hickey said this to me in the middle of my dark season. She said, Brother Mark, Jesus is attracted to your weakness. I didn't want to hear that. Jesus is attracted to your weakness. Hey, I'm Italian. Adrian! They're going to make an offer they can't refuse. I like strength. I'm, I've got that in my blood. But weakness? Peter didn't want to be admitting of his weakness. Though they all forsake you, I will be with you. Though they all deny you, I'll die with you. Got to go the way of weakness. Peter, I didn't choose you in spite of you. I chose you because I want to show people what, can I, what I can do with someone that is broken that only I can make beautiful. So let me finish this up and say the reason they said they're drunk is because they didn't want a crucified Messiah who was crucified in weakness. They wanted a political ruler that would kill all their enemies so they could say they were right and everybody else was wrong. And so they accused them of drunkenness. They knew exactly what was being said because the 120 were saying the wonderful works of language in the lang of God in the language. They were speaking the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When I was coming up, they told us there are three realms of the prophetic. There's the gift of prophecy, the office of prophet, and the spirit of prophecy. And, and the only term of the spirit of prophecy is in Revelation 19.10, and it's a capital S, by the way. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not some spirit. that. But we were taught it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a glory cloud that floats over a meeting when everybody can prophesy. Poppycock. I got a PhD in this. This, this one I know. I'm, I'm not an expert on everything, but this one I'm an expert on. It is not when everybody can prophesy. The testimony of Jesus, testimony, martyria, the cross-shaped reality of death, burial, and resurrection is the spirit of prophecy. Do you hear what I just said? It is the martyria, the martyrdom that is the cross, that is the spirit, capital S, of prophecy, and the moment you lose that, you turn prophecy into a sideshow. A trinket show, Eugene Peterson called the trinket show religion. Raised Pentecostal, became Presbyterian because he saw the abuses 30 years ago and was concerned. Now, I'm not saying there's not place for the ecstatic gifts. That's not what I'm saying. I move in them. But we have turned it into a sideshow in the last 30 years, and it's horrific to see how we've abused it. So now we prophesy about Caesar as well as about Jesus. God couldn't care less when it comes to prophecy about who's going to be elected. Jesus is king. 
And the moment you forget that and think some American politician is king, you have already changed allegiances and you're worshiping Caesar and not Jesus. It, we used to call it false prophecy. Now we call it revelation. I'm getting too old to worry about what people think when I say this stuff. But what I'm trying to say is that Peter had to answer the question, we don't want to hear about a crucified Messiah. We want to hear about a political ruler. And Peter said, these aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only the ninth, first hour of the day, third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. These men and women are filled with the fiery love of Jesus. And Jesus is out to lay hold of those that know they're broken and want to become beautiful, those that know they're barren and want to go by way of death into life. So let me close with this. On Friday, an amazing event happened that most people might not think God was in, but it's all God to me. And um, 21 horses were lined up at a gate. And the one in gate 21, the last and the least likely to succeed, was only entered into the race a week before the Kentucky Derby. Only cost $30,000 in comparison to the quarter of a million and up that all the other horses cost. The owner didn't think he had much of a shot. The trainer was working with him as best as he could. The jockey had a lot of confidence, but he knew he was up against odds that were 80 to 1. None of the sportscasters even paid him any mind until the last 30 seconds of the race. They were paying attention to the big names and the guys that they knew were at the top of the line. Nobody paid attention to a horse named Rich Strike. And within that two and a half minutes, by the time they got to the mile marker, they weren't paying attention that this horse, 20 horses behind, was moving through and other jockeys were making room because they realized they couldn't keep up with this horse that was determined to run the distance. And in the last 30 seconds, the announcers themselves, so full of wanting to look at the two top contenders, said, oh my goodness, it's Rich Strike. And while they think that the number one horse is gonna win, it's at the very last second, in the last five seconds, that the announcer even is willing to admit Rich Strike, the one we least likely expected. That's Pentecost. That's Peter taking his stand with the 11. That's God saying, all creativity and getting in the pocket means I start with the underdog, I start with the barren, I start with the broken, I bring them to birth, I bring them to beauty so that they can become part of a family of love that throws out a net that's more inclusive than it is exclusive. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can hear more messages by visiting summitessay.com.